Welcome to the Civil Procedure Podcast. I am your host, Thomas Main, and this episode is about the Erie Doctrine. I am going to try to cover both some history and the practical application of the Erie Doctrine and do it all in 40 minutes or less. So this is a very streamlined version of an introduction to the Erie Doctrine. The Erie Doctrine influences every cause of action that is in federal court that doesn't arise under federal law. Because when there's a federal question, courts apply federal law, whether it's statutory law or common law, and whether substantive or procedural, that's all federal law. But when we're in federal court and there isn't a federal question, and by that I mean diversity jurisdiction or supplemental jurisdiction, And in those circumstances, it's not immediately obvious what law should apply. Because on one hand, you might think that the federal courts should try to respect and therefore to replicate and apply the substantive and procedural law of the state courts as much as possible. From this vantage point, The idea of providing a federal forum for diversity cases is not to undermine or alter those state laws, but just to make sure that all of those laws are administered fairly in this neutral forum. That's why we would have diversity jurisdiction. That's one perspective. But on the other hand, you might imagine, hey, we're in federal court. The whole point of, say, diversity jurisdiction is to provide a neutral forum that is something of an escape from the state court of the plaintiff or the state court of the defendant. And in this vein, it might follow that federal courts should apply federal substantive law and federal procedural law. After all, if state courts are just going to replicate and apply the state law, well, then what's the point of providing the federal forum? Is it just to provide a fancier courtroom? So those are two perspectives. So what or which of those perspectives do we do or what combination of those do we do? Well, the answer to that begins with the Rules of Decision Act, which was part of the Judiciary Act of 1789. That statute still appears in our judicial code at 28 U.S.C. 1652. The key language from that statute provides that the laws of the several states shall be regarded as rules of decisions in trials at common law. Now, the famous Swift versus Tyson case in 1842 held that those words, the laws of the several states, meant only state statutes, not state decisional law, not common law. So this meant that in diversity cases, Federal courts applied state statutes with fidelity, but they had their entire own common law, their common law of torts, their common law of contracts, etc. 
If there wasn't a state statute, then there wasn't any governing state law within this interpretation of the Rules of Decision Act. Now, because the common law of the federal courts then often differed from the common laws of the state courts, well, there was an opportunity for arbitrage, and this made federal courts especially attractive to one party or the other whenever there was that difference. And parties engaged in all manner of hijinks to avail themselves of these opportunities. Now, these machinations occurred with respect to the substantive law. In cases at common law, federal procedure was mostly governed by something called the Conformity Acts. And under those acts, federal courts conformed, as near as may be, to the procedure of the state court in which they sat. So, let's get a bigger picture here then. So, in cases at common law, there was substantial intra TRA, intra-state uniformity with respect to procedure. A federal court in New York conformed the procedure in law cases to the procedure that the New York state courts applied. Now, with respect to substantive law, as we said, there was interstate uniformity with respect to statutes, but on matters of common law, there wasn't intra-state uniformity between the New York state and the New York federal courts. With respect to substantive law on matters of common law, there was more uniformity across all federal district courts. And so we could call that inter-district uniformity, I-N-T-E-R, Across the federal districts, there was substantive uniformity, so inter-district uniformity with respect to substance, but intra-state uniformity with respect to procedure. Now, on all of this that we've been talking about so far, this regards matters at common law. We are referring here to an era when there were separate systems of law, of common law on the one hand, and of equity on the other. And the Rules of Decision Act didn't address equity cases. It was limited by its terms to trials at common law. And it's fair to say that for the most part, equity jurisprudence in federal courts was really independent of state court jurisprudence. And this is true both of substantive law and of procedural law. So with respect to these equity issues, there was again inter-district uniformity across the system of federal courts, but at the expense of intra state uniformity, meaning the federal and state courts within any particular state. So it's against that backdrop, that Swift versus Tyson era, that the year 1938 arrives. And there are major changes in 1938 that continue on to this day. First, in 1938, 
new federal rules of civil procedure. That's when they were introduced. And among other things, those federal rules of civil procedure merged the systems of law and equity into one unified system, and they created a set of procedures that applied across the federal court system. Note the shift from a regime of intra-state procedural uniformity to inter-district procedural uniformity. One of those species of uniformity comes at the expense of the other. You can't have both. Meanwhile, the Erie decision from the Supreme Court reinterpreted the Rules of Decision Act. And so that's what we need to get current on. Well, here's the deal. Erie presented the classic opportunity for arbitrage that I described earlier. This guy Tompkins had a personal injury case against the railroad, and federal common law and state common law are profoundly different. It's much easier for him to prove negligence under the federal common law standard, and so naturally he files in federal court because that's an option available to him by virtue of the fact that he was a Pennsylvanian and the defendant was a New Yorker. So he had the choice to file in federal court, and he did for the obvious reason. And he won at the district court, and he won at the circuit court, but he lost at the Supreme Court in an opinion by Justice Brandeis that was much broader than anyone had even argued. And clearly Justice Brandeis was bothered by what I've called the arbitrage opportunity that was presented to Tompkins merely because of the fortuitous chance that he happened to be injured by a New York railroad company rather than being injured by a fellow Pennsylvanian. That gave him access to a federal court. That created that option that Tompkins naturally exploited. Justice Brandeis's opinion began, the question for decision is whether the oft-challenged doctrine of Swift versus Tyson shall now be disapproved. Given that framing, it's no surprise that he did disapprove, concluding ultimately that federal district courts should apply the statutory and the decisional law. That's the big change. By reinterpreting the Rules of Decision Act, the federal courts in diversity cases now need to apply the statutory and the decisional law in those diversity cases. He thus announces that there is no federal general common law. Now, the case is important because it respected and restored state authority in a profound way. In fact, in the Guarantee Trust versus York case that followed Erie, the court said that Erie expressed a policy that, and I'm going to quote here because it's pretty good, in all cases where a federal court is exercising jurisdiction solely because of the diversity of citizenship of the parties, the outcome of the litigation in the federal court 
should be substantially the same so far as legal rules determine the outcome of a litigation as it would be if tried in a state court. Close quote. Now, that principle is so baked into the mindset of the first-year law school curriculum that it probably doesn't seem to you like it could have been any other way. You've internalized this part of the Erie Doctrine before you even studied it. But it was quite revolutionary at the time. No one today is seriously questioning this part of Erie. It's all accepted now that, of course... Federal courts should apply state statutory law and state decisional law in cases that are in federal court because of diversity jurisdiction or supplemental jurisdiction. But appreciate that it's a bit of a dodge to say that federal courts apply state law because it's not at all obvious in many cases which state's law applies. After all, when you're in federal court in a diversity case, well, that necessarily means that the parties are diverse. And therefore, the underlying transaction or event, well, that might transcend state boundaries too. So, for example, a Pennsylvanian may be suing a West Virginian over some incident that touches on both of those states, and maybe even other states too. The question of whether Pennsylvania or West Virginia or some other state's law determines those parties' rights and responsibilities, well, that question is typically referred to as a horizontal choice of law problem. Horizontal. Horizontal because you can think of the states on a shared plane. And by plane, I mean a geometric plane, a flat, two-dimensional surface, no thickness, extends in all directions. Think of a paper map of the United States that shows all of the states. In choosing which of those states' laws apply, we refer to that as horizontal choice of law and horizontal, moving horizontally across that plain from Pennsylvania to West Virginia to Ohio. That horizontal choice of law is the core of a course called Conflict of Laws, and it is not really an eerie problem. We want to distinguish that. By contrast, Erie is not a horizontal choice of law problem, but rather a vertical choice of law problem, where the vertical conveys the hierarchy of federal and state court systems. And the choice between those two systems, as we've been talking about from the beginning here, is about whether we want the federal court to just replicate what the state court does. You might think of an architectural metaphor here, where architecturally, the federal court could look exactly like the state court. So the Illinois federal court could be built so it looks exactly like the Illinois state court. The Missouri federal court could be built so it looks exactly like the Missouri state court. That would be intra-state uniformity, replicating the state court system. Alternatively, you could have a system of federal courts so that the 
federal courthouse in Illinois looks like the federal courthouse in Missouri. But that inter-district uniformity would come at the expense of intra-state uniformity. You can't have both. Now, you might be wondering why there even is a vertical choice of law issue, because didn't we say here that Erie said that federal courts should be replicating the state courts? Haven't we chosen intrastate uniformity? Isn't that what Erie says? Question mark? Answer, not completely. And that's why we still have Erie questions to this day. And we're now ready to talk about that. In Erie, Justice Brandeis referenced this need for interstate uniformity with respect to substantive rules. And Justice Reed's concurring opinion in Erie made it even clearer that, as he said it, quote, no one doubts federal power over procedure, close quote. And so that becomes the core fight over this vertical choice of law issue, because on matters of procedure, federal courts can ignore state law, while on matters of substantive law, as we've already established, the federal courts need to replicate state law. Well, the problem, or the fun thing, as far as litigators are concerned, is that it's often debatable whether something is substantive or procedural. For example, how about a statute of limitations? Is that substantive? In which case, replicate the state law, or is it procedural, in which case, state law be damned, we can apply the federal procedure? Well, how about a state law that requires medical malpractice plaintiffs to file with their complaint an affidavit from a doctor attesting to the viability of the plaintiff's claim? A lot of states have incorporated a mechanism like that into their state laws. Well, is that substantive? In which case, replicate, Erie requires it, respect for federalism. Or is it procedural? In which case, state law be damned. How about prejudgment interest rates? Substantive equals replicate the state law. Or procedural equals don't have to worry about state law. How about rules that allow or disallow certain counterclaims or claims for set-offs? How about a state law that has a built-in preference for granting preliminary equitable relief? Do federal courts in diversity cases need to apply that law? What if states have a different burden of proof? Well, how should that work if you're litigating a state law claim in diversity in federal court? The labels substance and procedure are not terribly useful. One of the earliest attempts to differentiate these concepts 
suggested that matters that were outcome determinative were substantive. That's sort of like saying that if it's important, it's substantive, and if it's trivial, it's procedural. But the problem is that even the most trivial rule can be outcome determinative. It can be important if it's enforced. So, for example, if under state law, a defendant has 30 days to respond to a complaint, well, what should the federal court do in a diversity case under Federal Rule 12A, which, as we know, requires a response within 21 days? Well, if the court enters a default judgment on day 28, isn't the failure to respect the state law outcome determinative? Isn't that state law important? Well, then does that make it substantive? Although the labels substance and procedure are very fuzzy, it is important to at least have one-sentence definitions of these concepts that you wrote and that you understand. These sentences aren't going to do all the work for you, but they will give you a measuring stick when, as a starting point, you're going to need to measure something on an exam and argue that it's substantive or procedural. Your definition for substantive law might be something like, substantive law defines the party's rights and responsibilities. And procedural laws are the general rules for vindicating those rights and responsibilities. There are no universal definitions for these concepts, so do not feel particularly constrained here. One tip that I offer you is to avoid using the words substance and procedure in your analysis until the penultimate sentence of that analysis. Because once you've given it the label, substance or procedure, well, in a sense, then you're done. So to provide real analysis, analysis that isn't just conclusory and circular, well, then don't use the labels themselves until that next-to-last sentence where you can say, see, that's why I think it's substantive. And then your concluding sentence would be, and therefore we need to respect and apply the state law. Or in that penultimate sentence you say, see, and therefore I think it's procedural. And then your concluding sentence can be, and therefore state law be damned, because under Erie we can apply federal procedure. Now there are decades of cases wrestling with this vertical choice of law problem about substance and procedure. I'm going to cut to the bottom line and give you three steps of analysis that will get you focused on the things that matter right now in these contemporary contests. Now, step zero of our three steps, step zero is to make sure you even have an eerie issue. You don't need to do this at all 
unless there is a state law claim in federal court and one of the parties who is asserting or is defending that state law claim is asking the federal court to apply some state law, some state rule, some state regulation, some state custom. So step zero, before we even focus on our three steps, make sure you have an eerie issue. Assuming you have an eerie issue then, here are my three steps. Step one, when the state law has some substantive characteristics and the state law doesn't even arguably conflict with any federal law or practice, well, then a federal court will usually apply the state law. And so here is where you could use your definition of a substantive law as a springboard to identify the substantive characteristics of this state law. Maybe cite the Rules of Decision Act, Section 1652, because after all, that statute requires the federal courts to apply, quote, the laws of the several states, close quote. And if there's no conflicting federal law, then you're in a great place here on step one. But rarely will cases be decided on this step one, because much more commonly, the state law is going to have some substantive characteristics, since after all, what law doesn't have some substantive characteristics, but the state law is going to conflict with some federal law or some federal practice, and that puts us into step two. And to keep this analysis as simple and streamlined as possible, I'm going to jump past the grand jurisprudential battles of Justice Scalia versus Justice Ginsburg here, and I'm going to assume that the more formalist approach outlined by Justice Scalia is the path more likely to be followed by Justice Scalia and Justice Ginsburg's conservative successors. And in step two, what you want to do is you want to ask if the federal court's application of the state law, so if the federal court were to apply this state thing that somebody's whining about, Hey, in state court, I'd have 30 days to answer this complaint. Hey, in state court, they wouldn't be able to depose my expert as part of discovery. Oh, in state court, this counterclaim wouldn't be allowed. In state court, this would be tried to a judge, not a jury. In this step two, ask whether the federal court's application of that state law or practice or rule, ask whether it would interfere with a straightforward application of the text of a federal rule or of some other federal law. Now, there are two things going on in what I just said there. You're looking for interference. Would this state law interfere? And you're also addressing with what it would interfere. In step two, you are looking for real interference with 
positive law, meaning some mandate, not a tradition, not a practice, but something like a federal rule of civil procedure, something like a statute, something like a federal rule of appellate procedure. In these circumstances where there is interference, and it's interference with a, let's focus on, federal rule of civil procedure, what we say here in step two is that we have an eerie analysis that is guided by the federal rule. This is called a guided eerie, G-U-I-D-E-D, guided as opposed to unguided. The court wants to respect and apply the federal rules. Remember, the federal rules of civil procedure, like the Erie case, were a product of the year 1938. And for all of the obvious reasons, it would be handy if the federal rules of civil procedure applied in fundamentally the same way in all federal courts. So this step two asks whether applying the state law would really interfere with the application of the federal rule. Because federal rule of civil procedure 8A, for example, has a pleading standard, well, then some contrary state court pleading standard would interfere. And similarly, if the federal rules of civil procedure have a protocol for allowing class actions under certain prescribed circumstances, well, then some contrary state court law about allowing or disallowing class actions, well, that would interfere with the straightforward application of the federal rule. Again, when you have this kind of interference, then you call it a guided eerie analysis. It's guided by some federal written law. When you do have a guided analysis, you're going to go to what I'm going to call step 3A. If it's unguided, then you go to step 3B. So it's one or the other, not both. If it's unguided, which is to say, well, this doesn't really conflict with a written federal rule. It doesn't really interfere. If that's your situation, unguided 3B. So let's do 3A and then we'll do 3B. Step 3A. When our eerie analysis is guided, as a practical matter, that means that it's going to be governed by the federal rule. The federal court is going to apply that federal law or that federal rule of civil procedure. But step 3A does ask, is that federal rule a valid mandate? What we're talking about here is that there's this thing called the Rules Enabling Act, and that's 28 U.S.C. section 2072, and that's the statute that authorizes the promulgation of things like the Federal Rules of Civil Procedure. And that Rules Enabling Act says that the court may prescribe general rules of practice and procedure 
that do not abridge, enlarge, or modify any substantive right. This means that the federal rule just needs to be, in fact, a procedural rule, which you can assume it will be. We just have a placeholder here in case some advisory committee went rogue and put something in the federal rules of civil procedure that wasn't really procedural. Imagine, for example, some advisory committee that creates a new federal rule that would abolish comparative negligence. Well, we would get down here in step 3A, and we would say, wait a minute, this is not a valid federal rule of civil procedure. The court can promulgate these rules of civil procedure, but they do need to be nominally procedural. And this isn't the deep soul-searching about what is substantive or procedural, but rather instead a once-over lightly, yeah, this is kind of what a procedural rule looks like. If it's arguably procedural, that's good enough. Now, when you don't have a guided Erie analysis, then you're in step 3B, which necessarily means that we've got a conflict between some state law, so somebody's whining about how things are done in state court, but it's conflicting not with a federal rule. If it conflicted with a federal rule or with a federal statute or some other positive law, we would be over in step 3A. Well, then what else could there be? Ah, it could be a federal custom, it could be a tradition, or some other standard that isn't federal positive law. And to resolve this tension in Step 3b, the tension between the state mandate and the federal mandate, we do what's called bird balancing, B-Y-R-D, bird balancing, named after a case. And bird balancing just requires you to consider those two competing visions of uniformity that we keep talking about. Is this the kind of thing that should be the same in the federal and state courts within a state? Is this the kind of thing where intra-state uniformity is really important? articulate that narrative and balance that narrative against the competing vision, the interest in having uniformity across a federal system of courts. And here are three specific questions that you can use as prompts to address this balancing. First, ask and answer this question. If the federal court didn't follow the state court practice on this particular issue, Is this difference something that is so significant that somebody would choose the forum to get that particular advantage? A party is unlikely, for example, to choose a federal court because they don't have to file their pleadings in duplicate like they do in the state court. That's not something that would lead to what we call forum shopping. But something like this would be an issue that would be resolved by a jury as opposed to a judge. Well, that might lead to forum shopping. Somebody might choose the federal forum for that particular reason. The second question that you would want to ask yourself and to answer would be, again, consider that the federal court doesn't adopt the state thing so that there is difference between federal court practice and state court practice. 
ask yourself whether it's unfair that two otherwise similarly situated parties will be treated differently in the federal court and state court just because one of them got to go to federal court. They might have suffered the same injury, they might be otherwise subject to the same law, but one gets to litigate in federal court while the other is trapped in state court. Ask whether that seems fair. Some differences will pull at your heartstrings, others won't. With these first two questions, then, the more that it would lead to forum shopping and the more unfair it seems, the more compelling the argument in favor of intrastate uniformity. The third question you want to ask yourself as part of this bird balancing exercise is whether this is the kind of thing that should be uniform across all federal district courts. We have a system of federal courts. And one virtue of having a system is that even if you're called to litigate in the federal court in some unfamiliar state, you've got a sense of what practice and procedure will be like in that federal court. Then ask yourself, is this thing that I'm focusing on right here, is this something that should be a shared characteristic among federal courts? Because if so, that's the argument in favor of inter-district uniformity. Answering those three questions will get you talking about the things that courts will consider on a bird balancing analysis, which is this step 3B. So let's recap this whole episode. Before 1938, there was substantial intra state uniformity on matters of procedure, and there was lots of inter-district uniformity among federal courts with respect to matters of substantive law. But after 1938, those two visions of uniformity switched places. Now, because of Erie, we have substantial intra-state uniformity with regard to matters of substantive law, but among federal courts, we have substantial inter-district uniformity with respect to matters of procedure. So that's why the modern fights about Erie are about whether something is substantive or procedural. And I've given you a quick and dirty three-step framework that is a streamlined version of how courts tend to answer that question. And let me emphasize one last time that eerie issues happen because state law claims find their way into federal court. We don't have eerie issues on federal question claims being litigated in federal court. That concludes this episode of the Civil Procedure Podcast. I appreciate your attention, and I hope that you have a very good day. 